God, this morning our prayer is a simple prayer. Lord, humbly and uh, sincerely, Lord, our prayer is that the glory of the name of Jesus would be our all-defining passion. Lord, here at Palmetto Shores Church, Lord, and in every church that claims Christ, that he would truly be our passion. Lord, we know it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to be pulled away by other things. Even as Chandler prayed and mentioned this morning, even good things, Lord. But we're asking, God, that you would recenter us today, that you would draw our hearts back again to our Savior. We long for his glory, the glory of his name, to be our passion. Lord, would you come and work among us this morning as we open your word we long to hear from you. We are desperate to meet with you. So God, would you grace us with your presence. Move mightily among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Um, as you're taking a seat, uh, at this time our kiddos are um, welcome to head to the back to meet up with your leaders. And I want to invite us all to open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We heard verses 8 through 15 read. Um, the reason I'm a little bit emotional um, after singing that song is after spending uh, time this week in this passage um, you get a sense of, of the weight of what Paul is writing that it's really easy for uh, Christians and for churches to be taken captive, to be knocked off course, to um, lose our passion for Jesus. And this passage today is all about reclaiming uh, our passion for Jesus, our passion for seeing him for who he is and um, seeing the wonder of what he's done for us. Um, so as we turn this morning to Colossians uh, 2, what we're going to see is, is Paul's writing to this church, and he is seeing that there are people who are trying to smuggle in false truths, false ideas. And on the outside, uh, they seem harmless. They, they, they seem like things that maybe could be compatible with Christianity. But, but Paul is going to show us how, no, 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 these things that, that get smuggled in, these outside truths, these false truths that get smuggled in, they actually have extremely uh, terrible consequences. And so we, we have to maintain our passion solely and completely on Jesus Christ. Uh, recently, Allie and I have been watching the show about uh, people who try to smuggle things into the United States. Uh, sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's uh, people, uh, but sometimes it's food. Uh, surprisingly enough, people try to bring food uh, with them from other countries, and uh, normally, you know, food is, 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 is not a big deal. A lot, lot, most foods are, are okay to come in, but uh, a lot of times what they'll have to do with the food, though, is they'll have to inspect it first. And they'll put these foods under these microscopes, and they'll zoom in, and what, what a lot of times what they find on these foods is they find these very tiny little bugs that, that to, the, to the human eye, you can't actually see them, but under the microscope, you, you see these bugs, and a lot of times the people don't understand. You know, they look at their food and it looks fine. They're, they're thinking, why can't I bring this in? 
But what they don't understand is that these tiny little bugs that are, that are imperceptible to the human eye can actually cause great harm in the United States. And so they, you know, they take their food and they say, I don't know, they say that they throw it in the incinerator, but I think they probably have a feast in the back. I'm not really sure. See, in our passage today, Paul is warning us of, of, of these people who are trying to smuggle things in. And, and, and this morning, we're going to look at a number of these things. We're going to look at a number of false truths that on the surface might seem like not a big deal. But in reality, if they're let into our hearts, if they're let into our church, they can cause great harm, great uh, havoc. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we're going to look at two challenges from Colossians 2, 8 through 15, two challenges for thinking about how, how do we protect ourselves from being taken captive by false truths that are smuggled in either into our hearts or into the church? How do we protect ourselves uh, from something coming in that would ruin us, that would rot us from the inside out? And so, uh, if you're taking notes there this morning, two challenges, two challenges. The first simply is, let's not be taken captive. Let's not be taken captive. Verse 8. Uh, we, we already read the whole passage, but now we're going to just kind of unpack it. This is what verse 8 says. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, Paul comes in with this warning for the church, and his basic warning is this. Don't be taken captive by anything that's not in accordance with Jesus Christ. You know, there's so many different uh, things out there, but, but the main fundamental way we can assess something is, does it align with Jesus? Is it in accordance with the gospel according to Jesus Christ? Uh, normally, when we think of being taken captive, you know, we tend, we tend to be, uh, think of being taken captive uh, against your will. You know, like somebody comes in and they abduct you and they, they run off with you. That's kind of normally what we think of when we think of being taken captive. But I don't think that's actually exactly what Paul's getting at here. Uh, it's not exactly this idea of someone coming in and grabbing you and, and, and running off with you. Um, we recently watched uh, one of the Ice Age movies. There's so many Ice Age movies out. I don't know. There's like six of them, so I'm not, which, not sure which one it is. But we recently watched one of these Ice Age movies at our house. And there are these really nasty, ugly characters who are, you know, sort of uh, the protagonists at, at one point in one of these movies. But they appear on the outside to, to whoever you are. They appear to you as something that you would desire. So, uh, you know, like, I don't know, it's like the sloth, whatever. He sees the sloth girl who he's, like, in love with in, the, in this ugly creature. Uh, the mammoth sees his family in the creature. Uh, whatever that animal is who chases the acorn around, he actually sees a, a picture of an acorn on, on the face of this ugly creature. And so he goes running after it. But, but on the other side of what appears to be desirable, of what appears to be something that they would want, is actually a monster that's ready to pounce, that's re ready to, to, to devour them. And I think that's more the picture of what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that someone's going to come and pick you up and carry you off. What he's saying is that someone is going to entice you, seduce you, and deceive you into going after something that you, you think you might want, that you think looks good to you, but actually is empty and destructive and will cause havoc in, in our lives and in our churches. So what are some of these empty deceptions uh, which are not according to Christ? in our day and age, in our time. Uh, I feel like it's important this morning for us not to just sort of talk about this on a surface level, but I actually want to dive in. And we're actually going to, I'm going to very briefly, succinctly unpack 15. By the way, my original list was like 40. But we're just going to unpack about 15 of what I feel like are some of the major deceptive, empty, false truths that are robbing uh, us today of experiencing the fullness of joy in Christ. And so here, here are some of those, um, those empty deceptions. Empty deception number one is what we might call New Age spirituality. This includes things like crystals, good luck charms, um, zodiac and horoscopes. Right, right. We all want life to work out for us. We all want the stars to align. You know, we all want to know that we have a, a bright future. And, and so it's not surprising that people might turn to, to false spirituality to try to find that, uh, that in their life. But this does not align with Christ because Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by his power. It's, it's not some impersonal force, some energy 
that is holding the world together. No, it is the word of Jesus Christ that holds the word together, the world together. And Jesus calls us to put our faith in him, not in some good luck charm, not in some uh, you know, ritual that we might do that we feel like is going to give us good juju or, or, or good energy or, or, or something like this. Um, our future is in the hands of Jesus, not in phony, uh, some phony weird cliche you know, that you could probably find on a, on a, on a um, fortune cookie or something like this. Okay. Uh, a second empty deception is what we might call works-based religion. Uh, This is the false truth that teaches that our relationship with God and our right standing with God is based upon anything that we do. So here's the problem. All of us have sinned. We've all turned away from God. And so it's not possible for us to have a right standing with God based on what we do. And this also touches on the idea of penance. I'm sure there's lots of you here who grew up around the Catholic Church. Uh, Penance is an aspect of works-based religion, which teaches that when we sin, then, then it's up to us to go do something to make, it, to make ourselves right with God again. But this is not according to Christ, because Jesus lived the perfect life that fulfilled the, all the works necessary for us to have righteousness before God, and then Jesus died on a cross in our place to make up for the sins that we have committed. And that means the only way that we can be right with God is if we are united to Jesus through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. A third uh, empty deception is what I'm going to kind of lump together, universalism and religious pluralism. Universalism is the idea that everyone in the end will end up going to heaven, and religious pluralism is similar to it. It's the notion that all religions are basically the same, that, you know, maybe the illustration would be, you know, all all rivers lead to the same ocean, or or all trails lead to the same uh, mountain, or something like that. The idea that all religions are essentially, essentially the same. But this does not align with Christ because he unequivocally declared. Jesus clearly said about himself that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one would come to the Father except through him. Jesus placed himself as an exclusive savior of mankind. Uh, A fourth empty deception is that there is no need for the church. That there's no need for the church. Uh, there's some people who want maybe the feel-goods of a relationship with God or a relationship with Jesus, and so um, they, they want some sense of spirituality or some sense of the Bible, but they don't want to commit to God's people. Maybe they, uh, they pray or they read a, a Christian book every once in a while, or maybe they attend a Bible study, but they don't actually want to commit to God's church. But this does not align with, with Christ because Jesus laid down his life for his bride of the church. So to say that we want a relationship with Jesus, but not to commit to his church, would be kind of like going up to somebody and say, hey, I would love to be your friend, but man, I can't stand your wife. Like, I can't, I, there's no way I could be around your wife. And it's like, man, it doesn't work that way. Like, if, if you're going to hang out with me, what, what's the old song? Oh, this is good. Uh, you want to get with me? You got to get with my friends. Okay, I don't know. Uh, this is, this, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Yes, yes, ladies. All right. Um, wow. Um, number five, the, the fifth empty deception is this is that Christianity exists to make me feel better, meet my needs, and make me happy. Now, I want to be cautious with this. There's a stream of thought that teaches that Christianity is basically a path to success. That if I place my faith in Jesus, like he'll help me achieve all my goals and, and dreams in this life. Um, and, and I think included in this is that Jesus uh, will lead, if, if I put my faith in Jesus, it will lead to my healing and escape from any emotional stress in this life. And I think that's the key phrase, in this life. But this does not align with Christ because Jesus called us to deny ourselves and to daily take up our cross. Jesus actually said that we would find our life when we lose our life. Now, surely, and we're going to talk about this, the whole second half of the sermon is going to be on the benefits that we receive from Jesus. There are endless benefits that we receive from from Jesus. But Jesus has called us in, in this time period that we find ourselves in. He's called us to suffer with him in order that in the future we might enter into glory with him forever. Uh, a sixth empty deception is karma. Now, uh, the street-level version of this is that what goes around comes around. That if you put good out there, then good will come back to you. And that, that when something bad happens to somebody, uh, it's because they had it coming. That's kind of the street-level version of, of karma that we see today. But this does not align with Christ, because through Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. See, there, it is true the Bible teaches a wisdom principle that you reap what you sow, But it's also true that the gospel teaches us 
that we reap what Jesus has sown, that we receive the blessing because he took the curse, that we receive life because he took death. What Jesus Christ means for this world is that God actually does good things for bad people. Uh, Seventh empty deception is that life will work if we all just put ourselves first. Have you guys heard this? I mean, this just must be the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. That, that, that what we actually ought to do, that life will work, that, that human beings would, would flourish and that society would go great if we all would just put ourselves first. I mean, what a bag of garbage. Um, this does not align with Christ because uh, Jesus taught us that the most important commandment is actually to love the Lord your God. In the follow-up, second, second to it, Jesus does say, that we should love others as we love ourselves. I mean, that's a strong statement, to love others as we love ourselves. But see, that loving others as we love ourselves only works after we've been displaced out of the center of our lives and that loving the Lord your God has taken up the central, the central component of our lives. Um, Jesus does encourage us to pursue our own joy. So I want to be clear on this. He does say, pursue your own joy. But he teaches us that pursuing our own joy is found in the worship of God not the worship of self. Uh, An eighth empty deception is that we ought to follow our heart or our gut. Uh, I say heart and gut because they're not exactly the same thing, but in a sense they kind of are. Uh, The general idea with both is that I have the right answers inside of me, and that if I can just follow my feelings, that if I just follow what's inside, then I'll end up in the right place. But this does not align with Christ because Jesus actually taught that the things that come out of our hearts are evil. See, uh, we tend to think that when we, when we mess up or when we sin, we, we tend to think that we were sort of making a mistake, or, or this is how we say it, that, that that was out of character. You know, when we do something bad, we say, oh man, that was just so out of character. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not actually true. When you do evil stuff, that's actually you doing you. Like, that's actually you doing what is according to your, your fallen nature. When, when you do sinful stuff, when you make mistakes, that's actually more naturally according to who you are in your sin. So the heart of man is deceptive and wicked, cannot be trusted. Uh, when and only when our hearts are being washed over by the Word of God and submitted to God's will through prayer and surrounded by God's people in community, only then can we begin to follow our hearts. Uh, a ninth empty deception, again, one that I think I want to be careful about and nuanced about. I want you to hear, hear, hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. A ninth empty deception is that science is obvious, infallible, and self-explanatory. There's an approach to the scientific, scientific endeavor that puts way too much hope in all this data that we find, all this information that we collect, okay? Uh, the idea is that if we could just know enough, if we could just uncover enough information that we could solve all the world's problems. But uh, beyond the fact that the interpretations of the data are changing all the time, right? Someone has to actually take the stuff and synthesize it, and then get, make meaning out of it. And those, those interpretations change all the time. We know this. Every five, ten years, you know, what you eat, what you don't eat, all this stuff, it changes, okay? Beyond that, an approach to science like this does not align with Christ because it robs us from the life of faith. Jesus invites us into a life where we actually depend upon him. We depend upon him for our very sustenance, our life, our future. And so when we put so much stock in uncovering all this data that's supposedly going to solve all the world's problems, it robs us from, from finding our refuge in God as we've spent so much time in the Psalms over the last few years, begging us, imploring us to find our refuge in God. So uh, let me just be clear. The scientific, scientific endeavor has its place, and I'm thankful for it. Okay, I want to be clear about that. I'm thankful for it. It's just a method, right? It's just a method of uncovering things and doing research. It's great. It has its place. But... When we wholesale embrace it as obvious, infallible, and self-explanatory, then it stands opposed to Jesus Christ. Uh, A tenth empty deception is that wrongdoing justifies wrongdoing. Anger, retaliation, and vengeance, I I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe this is just what happens as you get older, you just always feel like, man, things have never been this bad. You know, I don't know if that's just like sort of what happens. Maybe it's it's just everybody feels that way. I don't know. But it just seems like the... Uh, the idea of vengeance, anger, revenge is at an all-time high. Um, we take on sort of a victim mentality no matter what, and then out of that place of victimhood, we justify 
our meanness, our unkindness because of the pain that we're feeling. But this does not align with Christ because Jesus forgives his enemies and he calls us to do the same. It's actually the height of hypocrisy. It's the height of hypocrisy for us to receive forgiveness from Jesus, but then turn around and not give forgiveness to someone else. It's never right to sin. It's never right to sin, even if we have been sinned against. Being sinned against does not justify our our sin. Eleventh empty uh, deception is that authenticity is more important than truth or modesty. Uh, There's a value on authenticity in our day that places a higher um, priority on telling it like it is and living your truth and expressing yourself uh, than on the actual biblical values of truth and modesty. And this doesn't align with Christ because, listen, Jesus, I I don't know if you understand this about you, Jesus is the exact opposite of the idol of authenticity of our day. Jesus over and over and over again told his disciples that he never did even one thing that had not been commanded for him to do by his Father while he lived on this earth. Jesus lived his entire life was a life of conformity. His entire life was one of restraint, was one of self-control, was one of self-effacement, was one of humility. Uh, A twelfth empty deception is that religious passion is weird at best and dangerous at worst. That religious passion is weird at best and dangerous at worst. See, we live in a time where it's like, you can have your faith, right? You can have your faith as long as you keep it to yourself. <laughs> like you, you can have your faith as long as it, like it helps you become a, a, a better person or, or, or a feel better, but don't bring it into your public life, your public spheres, you know? Like, that's not okay. Uh, but this does not align with Christ because, listen, it was his public and passionate witness to the kingdom of God that, had, that, that ended up getting him executed. We have to understand about Jesus is that Jesus was seen by a threat both by the Jews, by his own people, and by the Romans. Like by the time Jesus was crucified and condemned on a cross, he was seen by, as a threat by everybody. Why? Because he was willing to publicly associate and declare and proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God. And Jesus unapologetically teaches us that our entire lives— Our entire lives, both private and public, should be swallowed up by our relationship with God. And his great commission, like this is what he told us, this is what the church now is about, is about making disciples and making disciples of every nation. And so our job, our goal is to go uh, and be sort of weird and be religiously passionate and uh, and try to encourage other people to believe like we do. Uh, That's our our job. A 13th empty deception, and this goes along with authenticity, is that acceptance and affirmation are the highest virtues. Acceptance and affirmation are the highest virtues, and offending someone or hurting their feelings are the worst sins. This goes alongside of our idol of authenticity, and uh, I really don't even feel like I have to like, say much more about this because I think we see this and feel this everywhere. This is all over the place. But this is not align with Christ because Jesus, listen, Jesus, while befriending sinners and loving people who were far from God, he loved people deeply. He became friends with people who were the, the worst of the worst in society. While doing that, he also called them to repentance. And repentance fundamentally means to turn, to change. Uh, none of us come into this world as we ought to be. And that means when Jesus calls us to repentance, here's the deal. inevitably, inevitably, Jesus will offend us. Here's the reality. If you've never been offended by Jesus, if if nothing you've ever read in the Bible, nothing Jesus ever said has ever offended you, you have not spent time with Jesus. It's not possible. And this is why Jesus is is quite all right to hurt our feelings if it means he will save our souls. Like, he's quite all right for us to to realize that we're actually, we don't come out into this world as this beautiful thing that needs to express itself. No, no, no. We come into this world broken. 
We come into this world at odds with God, and that means we need to be corrected. We need to be reformed. We need to be transformed by, by him. And sometimes it doesn't feel good to, to hear that. Uh, a fourth, a uh, 14th, not fourth, a 14th empty deception is that we have to be politically radicalized or the other side will win. Uh, there's so much fear being used in our world today. When I think of what Paul says here, when he, when he says the phrase, um, taken captive, see to it that no one takes you captive, nothing comes to my mind more than the political rhetoric of our day. Here's basically the, 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 here's the subtext to every message. You have to make this the most important thing in your heart and in your life because that is what the other side is doing. And so if you let up at all, then they will win. You know what that's called? That is called being taken captive. That's called being bullied. That is called being held hostage. But this is not aligned with Christ because it mixes up the priorities of his kingdom. Listen, politics are messy and they matter and we should care, right? Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. But they must not take first priority in our hearts. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus occasionally, like every once in a while, engaged in the extremely messy politics of his day. But it is clear that it was not even close to the top of his priority list. So we do not have to be taken hostage by political radicalization that uses fear to drive us to believe that it has to be the most important thing in our life. We do not have to be taken hostage by that. And a 15th and final um, empty deception. Again, the list could go so much longer. But a 15th and final um, empty deception is that there is no hope for this world. Uh, it's easy to look around and just be discouraged. It's easy to look around and feel like people don't care about God and they're walking away from the church and uh, the, the, the world just feels so chaotic, just feels so out of control. But this is not aligned with Christ because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Jesus has promised to make all things new. And beyond this, listen, we're going to talk more in a minute about our future hope of, of resurrection with Jesus. But beyond this, I, I want you to know something. Even right now, even in this moment, all over the world, Jesus is winning more and more people to himself. A soft estimate, a soft estimate of the current global reality is that over 7,000 people convert to Christianity every single day. Think about that. Every single morning, heaven throws a party as thousands of people go from death to life. This world is not hopeless. This world is full of hope. Ultimately, the problem with all these other empty deceptions, all the things I've mentioned and any other things, even next week we're going to look at some more, the problem with all these things is that they're not according to Jesus Christ. Some of them appear shiny on the outside. Some of them seem, from, from the human perspective, they, they seem like not that big of a deal. But when we put them under the microscope of Jesus Christ, when we put them under the microscope of God's word, we see that they're rotten. We see that they would hollow us out from the inside out. And here's the temptation. Um, it's a temptation for me as someone who's up here speaking. It's a temptation for all of us. Is, is the temptation to be listening to a list of things like this, to be listening to a list of potential deceptions and things that could take us captive, and to only be thinking about other people. To think, oh man, I know somebody who that would apply for. I know somebody who that one would apply for. I know somebody who, who needs to hear that. And not be willing to have the courage to actually look in the mirror and to ask God, where am I susceptible? Where am I susceptible to be taken captive? Or where have I been taken captive? Where has my heart been robbed, stolen, pulled, deceived, seduced away from what we were singing about this morning, the glory, let the glory of your name be the passion of this church or the passion of my heart, the passion of my life. Let the glory of your name be the passion in my life. What has robbed us away? What has stolen that passion? What has deceived us and pulled us away from 
Christ and Christ alone. So uh, maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> what now? What do I do? What do we do? Where do we go from, where do we go from here? You know, there's all these things. What do we do? Well, and that leads to our second challenge this morning. Our second challenge is let's be captivated by Christ. What flows out from verses 9 and 15 is one sustained argument that the reason we shouldn't be taken captive by any of these empty deceptions is because we ought to be captivated by the greater, the superior, the the more glorious Jesus Christ. Uh, Whatever this world has to offer, at its very best, falls short of who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, and what Jesus Christ offers us. So uh, here are four things that I want to draw about the superiority of Jesus over any other philosophy or way of thinking or way of believing in this world. Four things briefly. First, his origin is superior. Verse 9. Verse 9 begins. So remember, he's just said, don't be taken captive. Don't be captured. Don't be seduced and deceived by something other than Jesus. And he says, for, so in other words, here's why. Verse 9 begins, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Paul's saying, are we really going to go run after something else when we have Jesus Christ right in front of us? The eternal, glorious God himself in the flesh. Are we really going to turn away from him for some empty deception, some worldly wisdom that apparently changes every five minutes? We're talking about Jesus who comes from eternity past. We're talking about Jesus who earlier in this letter, Paul taught us from him. And through him and to him are all things. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who though he is eternal God, for us and for our salvation, took humanity to himself for no other reason than to save sinners like us. So rather than being taken captive by that which comes from man, let's be taken captive by him who comes from eternity. Let's be taken captive by the one who is very God, a very God. Second, uh, second superiority of Jesus over every philosophy, belief, and way of thinking in this world is that his motive is superior. His motive is superior. Um, the beginning of verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him. Past tense. And you have been filled in him. See, this world is full of people. This world is full of people who are happily willing to take advantage of others for personal gain. This world is full of people who will deceive and trick vulnerable people in order to benefit from them. But then we look at Jesus, and Paul says, and you have been filled in him. Jesus is the ultimate giver. What is it, what does being filled mean here? What, is, what does Paul mean by this? Well, it means, what it means to be filled is that Jesus fundamentally has given us himself. Jesus is the greatest philanthropist that this world could ever know because he has given the fullness of who he is to his people in such a way that the Bible actually says that we are united to him, that we're united to him. And so if Jesus has given us himself, If Jesus has given us himself, if we are united to Jesus, the one who, back in verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, if if that is the one who we are united to, then we have everything we could ever need. See, most of of these these empty deceptions, the reason we fall for them is because they tap into some need that we have, right? There's some need that we think. There's something that we think we need to go after, And so we go running after them in the wrong places. What Paul is trying to say is you go point by point by point. Any need that you and I could possibly have, Jesus satisfies that need better than any other belief system, any other religion, any other philosophy, any other way of thinking, any other idol out there. Jesus satisfies that need better than anything else ever could. Uh, Fairly regularly, Someone will park their, uh, their car in our neighborhood, and uh, they'll begin walking around, knocking on doors, uh, you know, selling something or whatever, trying to promote something or whatever it is. And, um, you know, what I've learned when a salesman comes to the door is that I am, uh, I am most susceptible to buy something when I need something. 
and I am least susceptible to buy something when I, I just really just don't need whatever they're knocking on my door about. So like 99% of the time, someone comes, knocks on the door, hello, you know, they got their little outfit on, and um, by the way, I mean, that's a tough job, all right, let's just be honest, it's a tough job. All right, so they come knock on the door, and so, you know, I, I know already, the answer's no, right? I, I just, it's like before I open the door, the answer's no. But I just, you know, you, you want to be polite, you know, so you just gently and politely, as quickly as you can, you sort of usher them back away from your house, you know, that's kind of my, my, my ethos. Um, but it just so happened that after rounds and rounds of saying no to different companies uh, a couple years ago, a guy knocked on my door to talk about uh, a, a roof. And it was like just a couple days earlier that Allie and I had just been talking about how we, we thought we needed a new roof. So this guy knocks on my door and, and I'm, I'm like standing there. We've just had the conversation. He brings up the roof and I had the privilege of making this guy's day. Like, I got to let him get a sale. I mean, it was, I thought it was a win-win for both of us. You know, this is awesome. But here's what you learn is when you don't need anything, it's easy to say no thanks. When, when you don't need anything, it's easy to say, no, no, I'm good. And what Paul's trying to help us understand this morning is that we, ha- if we have Christ, we have everything. If we are united to Jesus, we need nothing. And so the best way to keep ourselves from being taken captive by the empty philosophies, deceptions of this world is to be captivated by Christ and to be captivated by all the riches of what we have in him. So his motive is superior in that he is not someone who's trying to take from us. He is the ultimate giver. Uh, A third superiority is that his authority is superior. His authority is superior. I want to read all of verse 10 together now. It says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, all these empty deceptions that we've been talking about, they can fit into different categories. You know, you've got your religious category, you've got your social category, you've got your decision-making category, your wisdom category, whatever. You can, you know, you can find all these different categories. And what, what Paul is saying is, hey, pick a category. Jesus is the authority in that category. Like, like whatever categories exist, whatever aspects of life there are, Who's the person who knows the most? Who's the person who understands the best? And Paul's saying, it's Jesus. You know, you know when you're making a big life decision, don't you want the authority in that, ca- in that thing? You know, like, like if you're going to a doctor, like don't you want to go to the doctor who actually knows the most about what they're talking about? Like if you have to have a surgery, do you, do you want the person who's like, hey, I'm the uh, intern and uh, I'm going to try this for the first time? Or do you want this, the doctor who's done it a million times and has proven that they can do it in their sleep? No, of course we want the authority. We want the person who's proven. So what all Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, let's go with the guy who rose from the dead. Let's go with the one who has existed for all eternity. Let's go with the one who made us. And that means even if, or maybe even especially if, what Jesus says contradicts what we think is right or what feels natural to us, maybe that's especially when we ought to go with Jesus and not our own intuitions because he's the ultimate authority. And then fourth and finally, a uh, fourth superiority, and this is going to be the longer uh, of the four that we're going to cover, so we're going to kind of skip a rock across these last few verses, um, is his performance is superior. His performance is superior. See, ultimately what you have to do is you have to, you have to put, put these things on a scale. Right, you have to put all these empty deceptions, all these philosophies, all these different religions, you have to put them on one side, and then you have to put Jesus on the other side. And, and let's just honestly ask ourselves, which performs better? You know, which gives the better outcome? Which ultimately leads to the life that, that we long for? And Paul's going to pretty clearly t- show that Jesus outperforms any philosophy, any religion, any other way of thinking or believing that this world could ever dream up. Verse 11 says, In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the Old Testament, God instituted circumcision as as an initiation into the people of Israel. And God chose this sign, the, the cutting away of the foreskin, because it reflected the necessity of the circumcision of the heart. It was a picture pointing to something deeper uh, we are born into this world with dead hearts towards God, and so if we're going to have a, a relationship with him, we're going to be alive to him, something has to be cut away. In other words, we need heart surgery. And so when someone becomes a Christian, they actually experience this circumcision of Christ. 
The deadness of sin is cut away, as he says it here, the putting off of the body of flesh. The heart, which was dull and callous towards God, is cut out so that we can actually experience true life with God. So here, Paul's telling us that Jesus has done something for us that nothing in this world could ever do. He's showing us the superior performance of Jesus. He's asking us, is there any philosophy, is there any tradition of man, is there any way of living that could change us so deeply that it would actually perform this heart surgery that we desperately need? Paul's saying, no way, there's nothing in this world that could offer that, but Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus Christ, that is what he does. He cuts away the old, dead, calloused heart so that we can enjoy life with God as we were made to. Then in the same sentence, verse 12, he continues, and having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul moved from the sign of circumcision to the image of baptism. Um, the reason, uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're actually really excited. We're going to experience some baptisms here. Um, I think the next two weeks, uh, it's going to be great. But, but the reason that someone is plunged under the waters, the reason we um, take someone and we dunk them down and we raise them back up is because the baptism demonstrates the death and burial of Jesus. It's a picture of what Jesus did, that he was buried, that he went down into the ground. And so if, as our baptism represents, we have been buried with him, remember, we're united to Jesus, and so if he's buried, then, then we were buried, then it means that we left our sins behind. Jesus took our sins down into the grave, and guess what? They didn't come out when he came out. Our sins stayed in the grave forever, and this is the superior performance of Jesus. So let's again ask ourselves, is there any philosophy of this world, is there any human tradition that would allow a person to bury their sins, to leave them there, and to walk away, to never have to to be um, held account by God, judged for those sins anymore? Is there any philosophy in the world that could ever uh, perform that? No. And this is not even to mention the second half of the verse. This is my favorite part of uh, this section, where, where Paul says, in which... So he's still talking about baptism, the the going down and the coming up. He says, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Is there any path? Is there any mindset? Is there any philosophy in this world that can conquer death? Is there anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ who can secure an eternal resurrection existence for us from the dead. And I think this is the power of the image of baptism. When someone goes down under the waters and then they come back up again, they get to reenact the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is this powerful picture of being united to him so that coming up out of the waters we, we, we both see in them and we remember what it was like for us and that person gets to experience the, the felt reality that in Jesus Christ they are washed. In Jesus Christ they have been made new. In Jesus Christ they have, been, they have an eternal secure future that is a resurrected enjoyment with God forever and ever just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And these are the kind of things that Paul wants to show us why Jesus is so much better than anything else that we could potentially put our trust in. But he continues in verses 13 and 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, here's what we have to understand. The gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is not some human tradition that you and I are said to need to follow. The gospel is not a set of principles that you and I sort of mark off so that we live our life. The gospel is Jesus Christ doing something for us that we could have never done for ourselves. The gospel is Jesus performing a work that saves us and brings us back to God. And that's what makes uh, his performance so much more superior. Is there any human tradition, is there any philosophy that could cancel the record of debt that stands against us before God our judge? No, there is only one way to have right standing with God, and that is through union with Christ. 
that when we are united with him, we have, we have full assurance that all the debt, both past, present, and future, that we could ever rack up before God, it was placed on Jesus and then it was nailed to the cross. And just in case we aren't captivated yet by the superiority of Jesus, Paul adds in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, numerous times when Paul talks about these rulers and authorities, what he, who he's talking about is Satan and the demons. That's what he's talking about. So Paul is saying that Jesus has disarmed, disarmed Satan and the demons. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know, what, what does that mean exactly? You know, Satan, I feel like he's still out there, he's still doing things. What does it mean that Jesus has disarmed him? Um, well, I just thought, Fitting, you know, fitting for Satan, I would um, share an illustration from one of Benjamin's children's books. Uh, Benjamin has this little book about an alligator. And um, the alligator in the book likes to go around and scare smaller animals. Like, this is basically what he finds delight in. He goes around and he just, you know, he's spooky and scares, scares all these little animals um, for fun. And one of the animals realizes... He, he kind of sneaks up on the alligator and realizes that the alligator has fake teeth. And at night, the alligator takes the fake teeth out to sleep. And so this animal goes in at night and he steals the teeth. He, he goes and he grabs the alligator's teeth and he runs off with them. So the next morning, the alligator wakes up and he goes around on his normal rounds trying to scare everybody. But with no teeth, he's not scary anymore. And so rather than uh, drawing fear out of all the other animals, they just laugh in his face. They're like, why should we be afraid of you if you don't have teeth anymore? You're not scary. You're, you're laughable. What Paul is saying here is that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually stripped Satan and the demons of all their power. See, the, the evil forces in this world actually have no teeth if, if death has been defeated and the legal demands against us have been canceled, then what do they have? What does Satan and the demons actually have against God's people? There's nothing they can do to God's people. Uh, I want to read an excerpt from Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther. By the way, I just can't help myself. Uh, October 31st, which some people call Halloween, is actually Reformation Day. All right, folks? Reformation Day. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. Please go home and look it up. Um, love some Reformation Day on October 31st. Martin Luther... He shows us how we ought to think about the triumph of Jesus over Satan. I, I just, I read this a few years ago, and I just, I, I, I set it aside, and I thought, I can't wait until I get to put this in a sermon. This is going to be a glorious day when we get to invite Luther here, and he gets to share with us how we ought to think about Satan. Luther writes, when the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. Then the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner... You give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. Whenever you object that I am a sinner, you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Whew, man. Yes. It's, and it's not Luther, it's Jesus. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has stripped them of what used to give them power, the fear of death, the threat of guilt. And now, no, we look at Satan and we say, no, 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 no. No, I have been baptized into Jesus Christ. I was buried with him. I have been raised with him. And that means my eternal future is secure. You will rot in hell forever, but I will spend eternity with Jesus forever. Be gone from me, Satan. 
And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some other philosophy alongside the other philosophies and religions of this world. This is why it is so obviously clear that Jesus outperforms any other mode of thinking, believing, living in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a tradition. It's not something we do. It's not something we perform. The gospel is something that Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so how do we sum all this up this morning? If I were to sort of put this in a succinct, brief statement, here's how I would say it. All, all fullness, all fullness is in Christ. And we are filled in Him. So what more could we want or need? All fullness is in Christ. And we are filled in Him. So what is there? What is there more to want or to need? Let's pray. Lord God, we celebrate You today. We celebrate the triumph of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the fact that as we look at every single real honest need that we have, Jesus meets every single one of them in abundance. God, help us to be people who are full, who are full of all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us so that we might not be taken captive by anything in this world. God, we feel the serious pressure of the deceptions. We feel the serious pressure of Satan's schemes. But Lord, this morning we we say we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of what he tries to do. And so we want to set our, our gaze completely and solely upon Jesus Christ. Lord, may the glory of his name be the passion of this church. We turn now to worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.